0: Hello, and welcome to Launch Legends, the only podcast focused exclusively on the stories behind internet marketing's biggest and best launches. Each week, we sit down with an online marketing expert to tell the story of one of their launches, what went well, what didn't, and how much cash they made. And now, your host, Hamad
1: Akbar. Hello and welcome to another episode of Launch Legends. Today we're joined by Rob of Invisible PPC. Rob has done 18 launches over the last couple of years and he's done millions in revenue. Rob openly talks about what worked for him and what didn't. Initially, Rob had massive failures where he started a SaaS company that failed, he struggled for a while and then he started his agency and eventually he made some money. Then he met a partner who did his first launch with him. And things eventually took off. So there's a ton of value of how Rob went from failure to success. Uh, before we continue, please, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. If you are listening to this on a podcast, please rate and review. Thank you. Hey, Rob. Thank you for being on the show. So could you start with telling me how – you got into online marketing, your journey. Let's talk about that, please. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, sure. Um, for me, online marketing was entirely an accidental thing. I was running a SaaS company. Um, I think running, that's the grand explanation for trying to build something and failing. Um, around the time of the last recession in the early sort of 2010s when we built a platform just at the time that the world all collapsed. And we ran out of money at the same time. And I tried to keep it going um, by putting about £50,000 of my own money into it, which I didn't have and couldn't afford at the time. Most of that, I said, my money, most of that was credit card companies' money that I was choosing to use to prop up the business. Um, and it was failing. Um, so what we did to try and pivot and survive was run some Google Ads. And it brought a little bit of money in. And an interesting thing happened was that as we were doing that, people would say to me, "Hey Rob, I see you run those Google ads. You, you, um, could you do that for me?" And I go, "Yeah, you're going to pay me for it? If you're not, if you're willing to pay me for it now, I am so broke. I, you know, it's either that or a dance on a table, and that's not a good option for most people. So yeah, if you'll pay me to run some Google ads, hell yeah." Um, and so we did, which ran some Google ads, and then somebody else asked, and then somebody else. And we rapidly reached a point where it's like, hang on a minute, I've got a software company on one hand that's really, really struggling, and people are paying me money and want this all the time. Let's do more of this and less of that. Um, and that's how we started.
1: So, so talk, talk to me about the SaaS company. Why did you start? Why did you get the hunch to start a SaaS
2: company? So, Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I'm, my background is finance. Um, I'm a chartered accountant, so I've been in finance for years. But I always wanted to run my own business. So for me, going into finance was a recommendation I got as a kid that said, if you want to run your own business, you need to know your numbers. Best way to do that is to be an accountant. So I did. And the problem with that is they pay you really well and they give you nice cars and bonuses. And you look back 15 years later and you go, oh, crap, this has got really comfortable, but it's boring as hell. And I hate it. So let's do the thing that I actually wanted to do in the first place, which was run my own business. Um, And so you do that and you have the sit-down conversation with your family and say, don't worry, I'm not going to screw it up. Bad things aren't going to happen. And I'm leaving a perfectly good job. It's going to be fine. And then like a couple of years later, 18 months later, whatever the timeline was, you have the conversation with with your wife that goes, that thing you said not to do – I might have just done it. This, this house might not be ours very much longer. Um, and that's a tough day in the office um, when you're going to tell your wife and daughters you've probably got six weeks left in the house. Um, that's not fun. That focuses the mind. And that's what happened to me. The, literally from the day we had that conversation, I had to confess that we were in serious trouble. I'd kind of buried it. Um, so- then we got serious about the ads and we built a business. So that's really
1: really interesting that you really had to focus and then it started to work for you. What were you doing differently before? Were you trying to do too many things? Do you
2: know what I think it was? it's It's a really interesting question. I think to solve a problem, you have to acknowledge it exists. And for a long period, I was playing a game of, if I claim that the ads thing is a bit of a side hustle and it's a bit of a hobby, then I'm still invested in the software business and that's where my focus is. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't commit to either of them properly because you know one's struggling. We know that you can't do it, but you equally can't fully commit to the other because you're playing a game of going, that's a side gig. It's not that important to me. When you then step back and say, actually, my main business is dying. Uh, If I don't commit, if I don't acknowledge that, publicly accept that, and then say, this thing that I believe is going to save me is the other thing, the the side thing, then I can fully commit to it. So you almost need to acknowledge the problem and publicly commit commit to solving it. Um, And that's exactly what we did. So uh, the interesting thing is both businesses survived. The software company actually survives, and I still own a part owner of it today. Um, It's been profitable for the last five years.
1: That's really interesting, Rob. Um, So I've been struggling with the same thing for for a long time where – on one, hand, on one hand, you're thinking, okay, I need to focus and focus on one thing only, and only then it's going to work. And typically, typically for me, it does. But then, and I'm sure that's happened to you, when that messes up, you know, you've, that's say you had all your eggs in one basket, and that's it, you was back to square one. But on the other side, you try to do multiple things, hoping that either, you know, at least even if one of them takes off, that's it, you focus on that. So I, I struggle with that thing as well. What's your take on
2: that? Yeah. My take on it is multiple things is fine if you have the resources to do them properly. Um, the mistake I tried to make at the time was, and I didn't know any better, if I'm honest, um, was trying to do two things, doing neither of them particularly well, um, very much building the airplane as I was trying to fly it at the same time, figure stuff out. And um Never really getting to be deep into one of them for, for long enough to give it a chance. It's fine running multiple things once you've got one thing running really well. Mm. Absolutely do it. Know what your metrics are, know what your numbers are, know what your key KPIs that tell you if you're heading into a brick wall are going to be. But don't do that when you've got two startups at the same time and both are failing. I mean, that's just dumb with hindsight.
1: So for me, that's a really, that's, that's a very interesting topic. You know, we, we, we'll talk about, we're going to talk about your successes, but failures are very interesting to me. Now, I if, learning you, lives. if you were to go back all that time ago when you had the first conversation with your family that, look, I'm about to uh, go into business, uh, what would you do differently? Would you still have gone through the same journey of, you know, the learning where you would try to do a couple of things and then mess so up?
2: I think... Yeah, for me, the decision point where things went wrong is actually prior to that. The decision, the thing that for me was the big issue is um, when you build a software or anything, um, you need to be able to sell it. And so we were invested in the cleverness of the idea, how brilliantly world changing we were build things that we we're building were, okay. with no clue how the hell to sell it. Um, and no obvious salesperson in the business. I'm an introverted accountant. Sales is not my bag. I'm much better now, but at that point, you know, even speaking to somebody with a sales conversation was a terrifying experience. So the advice I was given was, if you want to go into business, know your numbers. It's actually terrible. The advice I should have been given at the time was, if you want to go into business, know the know how the hell to sell something. You know, I could I could count very precisely how much money I didn't have. Um, hmm but I had no means of putting more in the bank account because I couldn't sell a thing. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the advice is definitely learn how to sell something first and, you know, MVP ideas and you know, minimum viable product, Test things first before you spend, as we did, well over £100,000 building something that, in the end, nobody wanted mm-hmm. um, and didn't care about. We only got to a viable product where I actually got a sales appointment with somebody. I drove from my home to Kent, which was a four-hour each-way journey. Mm -hmm. I walked through the door, and the first thing he said was, that sounds great, but that's not what we want. We just want something simple that does this other thing. And in a fit of temper, as I got back into the car, I called the dev team and said, the thing we've built, I want it turning into that within the next two weeks. And because we were kind of on that path anyway, so I said, I want it now. Build, build, build me that simple thing and I will go and sell it. And we did. And we sold it. Um, we actually sold the thing the market wanted, not the thing we thought was clever. Um That's a so, a yeah, uh, huge point of learning was actually taught to people. Yeah, exactly. That's the, I mean, I've made the
1: mistake multiple times and I still keep seeing the same problem where the development team or the, the founder goes and builds this monster Then he doesn't know who it's for and who to sell to. And then they go and they can't get traction and the business collapses. So
2: I think I I found when you have to spend all your time explaining to people what the thing you've built is and does, and they've got to send through an education process as to what it is, what it does, and then why they might need it when it's something they never thought about buying before. That's a really hard job to educate a market. Because you're creating a market out of fresh air, and that's hard. Um, Unless you've got deep pockets and a lot of patience and time, don't do it. Well, even if you have deep
1: pockets, I think you shouldn't do it. (laughs) Unless you want to waste your money. Um, Exactly. But fast forward, so you started doing consultancy. You started providing your PPC services. Um, Yeah. How did
2: that come along? How did that go eventually? So that went really well. But it went really well by a stroke of good fortune, which was – my third client was an agency and they approached me um, and said hey rob we've got a ton of clients and seo and website bills but we don't do ppc um we don't want to do ppc but we can sell it how about you tag team with us we'll do the sales pitch you do the technical work and we'll split the money Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and given what i said about being an introverted accountant who doesn't like selling This was like this was just like the perfect business model for me at that moment in time. It's like, okay, how do I get more people who look like you to do this? Um, And so we started that off, and that gave us scale. I had one point of contact now, which was his agency, and they would just keep feeding me clients, Mm -hmm. and they were keen because all their salespeople are on on commission targets. So the great simplest way to increase their sales from an existing customer: sell them another service. So they, they loved it. And we're just, you know, every week I get a phone call going, Hey, Rob, I've got another one for you. I've got another one for you. Um, and then I actually found myself in the US via some Facebook groups by just being helpful. When I was in some marketing Facebook groups. Whenever anybody asked a Google Ads question, I'd answer it. Um, and I'd wake up with the following morning to a bunch of messages from guys in the US going, Hey, Rob, loved what you said here. Do you do that for the Rangers? Could you do it for mine? they like, Of course I can. Anytime. time and as i said at the time i was broke so you know i was finding myself taking client calls with agencies in new zealand at 5 a.m in the morning um, uk during the day and then an afternoon and evening going right through to the evening with pacific coast in the u.s so i mean i was very quickly exhausted but the bank balance was going up not down so um that was the model we settled into was this white label model which meant that we could grow and scale on relatively small numbers of relationships uh, where we never had to actually do any selling because the selling was done for us. And it, for me at that point in time, was perfect. Mm -hmm. So
1: what happened then? So you were doing PBC and then you started doing launches. How did that transition happen?
2: Yeah, so so that kind of came about because, so I went to an event in Denver, Colorado in 2013. What was the name? Where a bunch of my customers were going. Okay. the name of the event? And I went there because it was... Sorry, what was, sorry?
1: The, name? What was the name of the event? Uh, sorry, Rob, the, the name of the event.
2: It was something like the Local Internet Marketing Summit. Okay, okay. Yeah, it was something like the Local Internet Marketing Summit, something like that. There was about 400 local marketing businesses in there, a bunch of whom were my customers. Okay. Um, and I couldn't afford to go and see them all individually. I kind of came to the conclusion, look, these guys are giving a bloke in the UK. A lot of money when there's probably somewhere, somebody somewhere else they could hire, but they're using me. I'll, I could just about afford the airfare. I'll go there. I'll show up, meet people, try and build some relationships and see if I can, um, you know, make a few more while I'm there. Um, and that event for me was a huge hit. I picked up a ton of business there, I had literally a ton of business. It was insane. That was the hockey stick moment in our business, but while I was there, I met one of the event organizers who said, look, you've got, uh, clearly got really good dial systems here. You need to turn this into a course um, or a software or something. Would you be interested in partnering up on it? Mm-hmm. So I did. And that was basically nine months later um, with a partner who was very well known in the local internet marketing space. Um, I've done many previous successful launches himself. Mm-hmm. He and I partnered up on our first ever launch, which was like summer 2014. Okay. Um, I actually did it while I was on holiday in a villa in Florida at the time. Um, top tip for anybody: do not launch a product when you're on a holiday and you don't have any support infrastructure. It was profitable, but one of the most stressful times of my life.
1: So, so let's talk about the product and uh, your whole strategy. So, one thing that worked for you, I guess, was being with an experienced partner who had done launching. Hmm. So the whole process. And what I'm seeing by talking to a lot of people is the people who did the first successful launch and they they, they did it with a partner, someone who, partner, mentor, someone who knew what was going on. Talk to me about your strategy, uh, the calls, the pricing, and the launch sequence and everything. I'm just putting it out there. Just talk to me about what you put together. Yeah, so
2: what we did was we put out, it was a a course on how to sell Google Ads to local businesses with a software which did lead generation for them. It's quite innovative software of its time, really clever. Um, what it did was we sold that at a sixty six ninety seven price point um, with a um, $69 monthly recurring for the software after like the first three months, for, which were free. Um, so that gave us front, front revenue and recurring. We then did a joint venture split on the, the, the way the financials worked was JV's partners would get, I think 40 or 50%, depending on their relationship with us. And then me and my partner would split what was left, um, between us. And so that meant that, um, cause he had got lots of joint venture connections. Uh, we first launched his list, um, and did I forget the exact numbers because it's now six years ago, which is terrifying. Um, but we did about a hundred, hundred and fifty sales on that one. So it was pushing towards a hundred thousand dollars. How, how big was the list? Um his list I don't know, I never saw it. Um, I'm guessing it was probably between seven and ten thousand. Okay. But we did about but we did we did close to a hundred thousand dollars on our first ever launch. Uh, with a fairly terrible web, webinar presenter in me, um, what we did have the advantage was it was his list it was co branded, and uh, we were able to um, cope he wrote a lot of the webinar, so i wasn 't writing my webinar for the first time cold I was you know benefiting from the experience of somebody else and that i, I couldn 't have done that without um, Suffice it to say that as we went through that launch. Um, We found that it was going well. We also found that um, uh, I hated the support experience. And this was a mental lesson I had to go through and other people who launch a course would have to do, is that until that point, all the people who were my customers had come to me and chosen me and were pre-sold on who I was and what I did. Now now I've sold something with a price ticket to a bunch of strangers who are going, who the hell are you and why are you saying this is right? And I'm going, well, this is strange. This is, this is unusual. And people were being rude and people were unreasonable and weird. And also, you know, we suddenly found lots of people had debts in the family and suddenly needed refunds because... You know the mortality rate amongst people who people's families who buy internet marketing products. turns out it's very high. Um, so we went to a strange market. people are asking for the money back. Why? And not not many, but relative to what I'd ever seen in my life, this was horrible. And I and I said to him at the time, "I'm not sure I can ever do this again because I hate this experience. It's horrid." Um, and and that was despite the fact we got many thousands of dollars in our bank. Um, which is more money than I've ever had in one place at one time in my life. Um, and then after two weeks, PayPal froze our account. And that was our only payment method at the time. So that's not fun. So that, that's quite strange to hear because uh, PayPal has always done that. I've heard some horror stories. Oh, where- yeah. I had no idea that was a thing, though. Okay. Um, I've been using PayPal. Bear in mind, most of my customers by this time were in the U.S., I had staff in the US, um, and this little guy from the UK was running an entire team of remote workforces, some of whom were full-time employees in the US, on PayPal. Okay. Um, so when they shut my account down, I think they shut it down with a balance of about $40,000 in it. Uh, is that um, the Internet launch or the JV launch? This is the JV launch. I was running everything before, um, through PayPal before that anyway, but during the JV launch, um, suddenly, they shut, they froze my account um, with about forty thousand dollars in it. I couldn't pay my affiliate partners, I couldn't pay my staff, I couldn't pay myself, and it took me about a month to get it resolved. And then they put like a twenty percent, ninety day reserve on it. It was like holy shit. Um, so yeah, that that good lesson. Don't ever, ever, ever rely on PayPal for a launch like that because they will hurt you.
1: I mean, thirty days is still very good because uh, I mean, and that product, with them, we launched several times. PayPal in thirty days, you got it resolved. That's still quite good. I'm sure it was painful for the max at that time, but I've heard about people where PayPal just took the money for a couple of years and then eventually they got it back. So thirty days in hindsight is still better than other people. But I'm sure at that
2: time it was extremely stressful and traumatic for you. It was horrid. It was horrid. Yeah, but we. But to be fair, once I kind of got over my initial. Uh, frustrations. We did about another fifteen or twenty JV launches with that product over the next eighteen months, wow. um, and it did very, very well for us until we retired it in sort of twenty fifteen. Okay. So how much money? We, we really didn't do much for for a long time after that. Let's talk
1: about the numbers. How much did you manage to make out of it altogether in revenue?
2: Um, we did about uh, 1, 1,200 units of the actual software. So let's call that $700,000, um, um, plus the monthly recurring, which would have probably added another 50% onto that. So it, it was a million dollars launch overall um, over the couple of years that we ran that product.
1: Wow, that's great. So um, let's talk about your recent interesting launch we talked about, the low, low-touch low software. And let's talk about what, yeah. how you guys do Things differently, now, so why. Why the low-touch offer, and
2: what's so interesting about it? I'd love to. So, we, yeah, no, absolutely. So, as a business, um, we stopped doing launches probably 2017, um, and and stopped doing training offers. Um, we had our reasons internally at the time. I'm not sure there were good reasons. With hindsight, uh, I think they probably hurt us more than they benefited us. Um, but the time, you know, you make a decision that feels like it's a good thing, and sometimes it isn't. So this year, um, go ahead. Can you go more
1: specific into why did you stop doing launches? Uh. Hmm, sure. So
2: why did we stop? Um, there, were two th- there were a few things that I disliked about um, selling online training programs. One is the fact that most people don't use them. Um, and I had a real kind of moral, ethical uh, crisis over whether we were doing a good thing. If people were paying us and then not using it, whose responsibility was that? Um, and it took me a long while to come to the conclusion that provided we've done everything we can to help somebody, we've given them opportunities, we've given them resources, we've given them reminders. Ultimately, people have to take responsibility for their own actions. And, But it took me a long time to reach that conclusion. A long time. Um, and the other thing that we would find is that people who bought our program, the way it was positioned at the time, and then would use us for fulfillment, had a sense that I bought a product, I don't need to learn anything because you're going to do it all for me. And therefore, I'm going they were responsibility for the service they were assigned to their customers. So they would promise rainbows and unicorns to their clients, and we would be left to pick up the pieces. And I'm making a generalization. So it's not everybody, there's some fantastic people went through that program. But we had enough of a proportion of that that kind of, it's your responsibility, not mine. Um, my customer wants a $50 cost per lead. Therefore, you've got to deliver a $50 cost per lead. And we go, OK, he's a lawyer, it's $100 a click. Give me a clue how we're going to make this happen. Um, and we felt for that reason, we would find that what was happening, we'd would, would get clients who would churn very quickly, they'd be very resource intensive, because when you've got somebody who hasn't invested in their own learning, we have to do everything, help them with everything, explain it to them, explain it, to, and, it and it became a massive resource suck and um, unprofitable in our agency part of our business. So training was doing great, but then it would cause carnage in the agency. Um, and so we felt from that that we would stop doing it because it was, if I'm honest, the internal friction it was causing with my management team. Um, it was causing so many arguments um, that it just became I, I lost the will to keep fighting. If I'm honest, uh, and the easier passive path to take was to not do them. So that's what we did for a long while. We stopped doing them, um, and which hindsight was the wrong decision. Um, I think we should have changed our attitude towards them, should have changed our processes of helping people. And I would say we have now, very much so. We've changed and come a long way. But that was what happened really, and that's why we stopped doing it.
1: Got it. So let's talk about the launch. Sorry, I had to disrupt you.
2: Mm. Yeah, so this year, so one of the mastermind groups that I'm in has a couple of people in there who've been very successful low-ticket launches, and to us – and we've never ever done a low-ticket launch. Um, Myself, my business partner, Joe Troyer, we've never done low-ticket launches. This is a whole new world for us, you know, the $27 offer. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's a low-ticket offer to you? What's a low-ticket
2: launch, so $27. Yeah, so for us, we're talking Warrior Plus $27 offer. Um, So, yeah. Rob, I'm still here. Yeah, so $27. So we decided to do it primarily because um, for us, it was never about making money off the offer because it's hard to make money off a low-ticket offer. It was about reaching new people who our other messages don't reach. It was a way of engaging with our joint venture community in a way that they could support. It's really easy for somebody to support a $27 offer that they only have to mail over a couple of days. It's much harder for them to support a seven-day webinar promotion. So it was a way to engage with our partners, to find new people in our universe who we could then bring into our agency and bring into other higher ticket offers down the line. So for us, it's the kind of worst case of H20 ever. The low ticket launch takes 80% of the effort and makes 20% of the profit. The higher ticket back end and other things that follow make 80% of the profit for 20% of the effort. And that's very much what we did. So, um, our launch this time, we did, um, it was called Dental Smart Pages. And it was basically, go ahead.
1: Yeah, sorry, I was just going to ask you what was the offer?
2: (laughs) And you actually beat me to it. Yeah. So, what we did was we did something called Dental Smart Pages. Background to that is that in our business, we do lots of landing pages to, for our clients. So, they get tested with huge data sets. So, our dental landing pages, we've tested over 300,000 clicks to dental landing pages in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. We know what works. But we only ever sell that as part of a PPC campaign. Mm-hmm. So, we said, what if we took out the best proven page we've got? which converts 10, 20% upwards. Um, and we made it a standalone thing that people could use as lead generation because you could go to any dentist who's running PPC directly to their website and go, hey, would you like to increase results three, four, five times? Here's a page, $1,000. And they could fulfill that themselves with no cost to us. Hmm. So we did a $27 offer for the Dental Smart page. Price went up a dollar a day over the course of launch. We had a upsell of a marketing materials package, which I think was thirty seven dollars, and then we had the final upsell was the landing page of the of the month club, which was basically different niche landing pages delivered once a month for twelve months, and that was our funnel. Um, And that for us, we had a really good affiliate support with it because we were able, we've got a good network, and we made it. You know heavily incentivized, so we paid 50% commissions on the front end and the $24,000 prize pot for competitions. So we went to make a big splash, and not surprisingly, when you've got that on offer, people did.
1: Let's go back a little bit. So, when you said that you had a lot of affiliates uh, because you have a big network for this kind of offer, if you were to do it again, how many? Affiliates, would you go with bare minimum? What's the minimum server of affiliates you need to
2: promote to make a splash? The number that isn't important. It's the ability. It's the it's the individual affiliates themselves that makes make the difference. You know, if you look at, I think in the end, six hundred affiliates signed up to promote that product. Of those, the top ten accounted for probably sixty percent of affiliate sales. The remainder top 20 to 30 accounted for 95, 98% of affiliate sales. So once you get outside the top 30, it drops off a cliff dramatically.
1: Those 10%, did they promote because you had very deep relationships with them or they were just really big and one click of the email push just provided all those sales?
2: Uh, a bit of both. Um, they promoted us because we have we have existing relationships with them, um, but we also made it extremely worth their while. I mean, if you know, you know, some of our affiliates were taking home, you know, I think our biggest one took eight thousand dollars in prize money, um, and another five or six in commissions for half a dozen emails. So we we i'll be honest we played on that entirely we 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 used every time of competition ego manipulation Mm -hmm. rivalries um to get affiliates to try and beat their peers Mm -hmm. um and bonus packages got ever more extravagant that they put together throughout the launch Mm -hmm. um because as much as anything it's about managing the mood and the ego and the expectations of your affiliate partners and I mean that in a nice way. We want them to be successful. We want them to have a great launch. Mm-hmm. You know, if we know that person A has a rival with person B, well, let's poke it a little bit because they'll both do better. They'll both try harder, and we all get a win yeah. out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tried very hard to make it a good experience for our affiliates. We've sent them gifts after the event, you know. So we, we, we worked hard on helping them, which was something I'd never done to that extent before, never And when you're doing a $27 product, I think if you look at the actual numbers, we did over $70,000 gross on a $27 product. Um, We did 1,200 front-end sales. So it was great.
1: Did you go straight into a JV launch or you did an internal launch first just to test the market
2: and then? Straight into a JV launch. Okay. So this was brand new, untested offer, untested pages on a JV launch in a market we were unfamiliar with. I'm guessing. Uh, but, I mean, to be fair, we didn't go completely cold. So our peers who were already in that space, we spoke with them a lot. We networked, we masterminded, we hired somebody to consult with us on how to do a low-ticket launch. So we we went in with a high degree of confidence that we could make it work because we'd taken the right advice from the right people we'd home the offer and had lots of experience that wasn't our own and i guess the biggest lesson there is use other people who've been there and done it because their experience counts so much we were partnering with people who've you know done warrior plus launches with two or three thousand unit sales on them regularly you know they know how to do it so learn from them
1: so you you got 1200 front-end sales and I'm guessing you made some uh, back and sales as well. Did you, what did you do with the of list? Course.
2: Not promoting? So what we did from that, so that was kind of phase one. Um, we had a three-phase plan. Um, phase one was the low-ticket launch. Phase two was an immediate mid-ticket offer that complemented the thing that I'd already bought, which we did like we did a dental masterclass, um, which was a five-week masterclass on how to sell in the, industri- in the dental industry. Um, we launched it on the day that the U.S. went into this lockdown and started shooting all the dentists. That was fun. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but we still had a very good launch with that. Um, we had to react very fast and change the messaging and add extra coronavirus related um, deliverables into the package to help. Um, but that was a very successful launch for us. Um, and so that went out at 4 97 price point.
1: So, what was the time difference between the phase one and phase two?
2: Twenty-four hours.
1: Oh,
2: the cart closed from the uh, low ticket offer on the Monday. The webinar went live on the Tuesday. Okay, and what um,
1: have you done so far with the webinar? The master. Sorry, what kind of numbers have you done with the masterclass so far?
2: The masterclass we did. Um, it was I, I can't give you an exact number, um, but it was well over a hundred sales. Uh, you know, four ninety seven a sale. So you know, there's, we we more or less doubled our revenue. But the difference is now we're not paying affiliate commissions on that, so we get to keep most of that. And is
1: there a phase three after that?
2: So phase three should have been a live event in la- in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, last month. All right. uh, funnily enough, we didn't do a live event in April, um, so we've had to pivot our whole model as to how we do the follow up services to that. So. Um, we're working through that at the moment. I wouldn't say we've got it all resolved, um, but it's unfortunate. But you know, the outcomes we're getting are, are good outcomes. Right. So,
1: I mean, you've done the you've done high ticket launches and you've done low ticket launches with the whole back end uh, masterclass. Would you do? Would you still do the low ticket again, or would you revert back to high ticket? We have.
2: Yeah, we've just done another one. Um, so six weeks after the first one so here's what we did and i think this is really really important um doing a low ticket launch the first time is a crap ton of work um more work than you could possibly imagine you would ever do for that amount of outcome it's financially don't do it for the money um you'll make some but it's the roi per hour and the brain hurt that it causes is not worth it um but we templated the project and the process. Mm-hmm. We had a snag list as we went through the launch, and every time we hit a bump or a question or a problem, we documented it. Mm-hmm. After the launch had been completed, we had a debrief and re updated all the project templates, went through it again. And so the second time round, which we did a much smaller launch, really just um, because we didn't want to do another big one. We'll do another big one over the summer. Mm-hmm. We had a second smaller one. Now, because we had people we knew were interested in this, we knew our JV partners enjoyed the first launch. So we did a, a low-key one. But we still did um, over four, 500 for end sales on the, on the low-key second one. So it was half the size. But it was done at two weeks' notice
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, as just a, hey, we're doing this, we're going to produce this page anyway for a landing page of the Month Club, we may as well put it on sale. Um, so the second time round, the effort and the stress and the friction was reduced, I would say, by about 60%. The tech issues we experienced were down about 60%. By the time we do the third one over the summer, um, it will probably be 20% of the effort that the first one took. So if the reason we would continue to do them is the effort level goes down every time, the quality of the deliverable and the customer experience goes up every time, and obviously our profitability goes up, and it keeps exposing us to new people. Um, and people – I don't want anybody to ever think that a low-ticket launch only attracts low-ticket buyers. It doesn't. We'd be staggered at the quality of some of the people who bought our products and they said, hey – hey, Rob, I um, don't know if you know this, but I've got like 70 chiropractors on my books. I'd like to think about working with you guys on those things. Would that be interesting? You're like, you've got 70 clients in this one market and you just bought a $27 landing page? Wow. Mm-hmm. But you can't make an assumption about who is buying these products because we all, as marketers, keep our eyes open. We see what's out there and we pay attention. Um, and so for us, that's a huge win. Um, so yes, we're definitely doing them again. Uh, there's no point otherwise, otherwise you lose all the learning, mm-hmm. and it keeps bringing new people into our audience who we can serve and add value to. Okay, so another
1: question that came, up to me, came in my mind was, you did the first one and you did another one two weeks ago. If you do them too frequently, are you not going to
2: cause launch
1: fatigue? By, you know, just oh, your- completely.
2: Okay. Yeah, completely. Yeah, that's why we're having a break. Um, In reality, they will probably go quarterly um, is what we'll likely do. So the second time around, we had most of our big affiliates from the first one didn't promote it. Um, um, or Or if they did, they did it to a lesser extent because the same reason. We brought out our first product was dental smart pages. Our second product was roofing smart pages. I'm sure you can guess the theme of the third one that we're going to do. Because again, it's a sequence and it works. Um, we don't want to reinvent the wheel; um, otherwise, you have to relearn how to do everything again. Um, so that sequence works well for us. But you're right; it gets boring really quickly. So we made a point of our second time round. We dropped the prize money right down. We made it clear it was just an opportunistic, short-term. Hey, we've got this. We're going to deliver it anyway. You may as well have an opportunity to learn some affiliate revenue if you've got a cap- gap in your calendar. Um, we increased the commissions to 75%, but we dropped the prize money down. So it was worth their effort if they got time. And one of our big affiliates said, look, I can't promote this all the time, but I can send you an email on Saturday morning. And he did, and we're like second we're second in the overall leader context because he's got a huge crowd. So, you know, we'll now leave that for a while. We'll, we'll support some reciprocal launches for other people, um, and then we'll go back over the summer and we'll do another big one.
1: Right, right. So, Rob, you, I mean, your, your story is very interesting. So you've gone from an accountant in a very safe job to your SaaS business where you struggle to consultancy to launches that. If there's someone who's in your position where you, where you were, like, that time at that time, in that, at that time what, what advice would you give that person? Where to start, what to do, especially in these times?
2: Yeah, so for me, it's about... Um... Uh, I just say one thing. I think launches for us are um, not our business. They are additional to our business. You don't ever build a business relying on this because a launch can fall flat. Um, um, it needs to be an additional, it's a nice additional thing to what you do already. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's about a being incredibly honest with yourself um, my change became came when I became very honest with myself and those around me. So when you asked me prior to this interview whether I'd be okay talking about my failures, the answer is yes, because that acknowledging that they happened um, is really, really important. When I sat, just as an aside, we, got, we made it right to the top tier of Google's agency partners, I mean, top 1% in the world. Um, as a result, I, a couple of years ago, had a conversation, had a meeting with um, the head of Google Ads worldwide. Him and his team joined my team for a conference call. And he said, why did you start your business? And I said, well, I we had three founding principles, which were cowardice, desperation, and a lack of better alternatives. Um, and he nearly fell off his chair with that level of honesty. But I think that level of internal self-honesty and being prepared to be honest and open about it is a really good starting point. So don't pretend the world is what you want it to be. See, deal with it as it is and you can take much better decisions. Um, and I think from there, be smart. Most people I've worked with who've been successful with their agencies over the last seven, eight years, and I've worked with lots I mean. Our, our agency list is now 6,000. Hmm. We've worked with probably 3,000 agencies and small solopreneurs over the last um, seven years. Um, is Those who do really well, take a model that somebody else has already proven, don't overthink it, and just get on and do it consistently. Consistent, repeatable effort where you learn it's so rare. So many people go, I've got this model from person XYZ. I can see how to do it, but I'm going to change this, this, and this because I don't like that bit. You go, well, have you tried it their way first? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> if someone's made something work, there's a pretty good chance you want to pay attention to it. Um and but often people don't do that. So consistent following a proven model to me is what it's all about. Don't ever try and just once you've got it dialed and it's working, then get creative. It's really, Never the other way around. It's really it's pretty
1: interesting what you're saying because you know do it quicker and more frequently. So when you worked on your SaaS, you worked on it for a long time, spent a hundred thousand, and then you went and spoke to someone and you realised, oh crap, you built something completely different to you were supposed to yeah if you were in you know if you knew everything you would have done it differently you would probably speak to the potential customers first and then build up and then keep launching quickly but then your first launch went relatively well because you had a mentor you had a partner who knew he had a model and you just followed that Mm -hmm. uh, completely and it just really worked for you so i think your advice is very solid that do it consistently do it rapidly and then work with someone or follow someone who's done it before I think that's perfect.
2: It really is. And that consistency of effort is something that I see, again, people go, I tried this and it doesn't work. Let's say they've got an email outreach method. Yeah. yeah I've tried this email thing. It doesn't work. I've not got a customer. Okay, how many emails have you sent? 35. Mm-hmm. Like, really? That's your level of effort. In three weeks, you've sent 35 emails and you're surprised you haven't got the outcome you expected. Just just take a step back and assess that as an independent person. If you were looking at that from the outside in, would you be happy with that level of effort to make a judge about the outcome? And I'd love to say that was a conversation I've had once over the last seven years, mm-hmm. but that wouldn't be true. It's all too common. The number of times I speak to somebody and three months later go, we'll have a conversation more. I'm just choosing my niche. What, three months? <laughs> really? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Pick one, start something. If you don't like it, move, but go and hit it hard. That level of intensity is I where, think, to, is, that's where you, it
1: happens. If you don't like it, move, but then you, you follow up with hit it hard. You have to hit it hard to realize, okay, yeah. I've hit it hard. I don't like it. I need to move on. But you can't say that. So your, your your advice is perfect. That Don't like it, move, but you have to hit it hard first. But a lot of people yeah. get into something, they don't like it, and then move on to something else. And then they dabble. Well, but they never really
2: start. They're, they're, it's it's a case of never really starting. Yeah. you get to the kind of dabbling, your toes in the water level of effort, mm-hmm. a level of commitment, and you play around a little bit, and then go. Oh, this is hard because things are always hard when you first do them. You know, it's like anything. Everything is hard at the start. It should be hard. As far as I'm concerned, things that are difficult is really good. The more difficult, the better, because When you solve difficult, you know you've already thinned the herd because most people won't do that. If you solve something that's really difficult, the vast majority of people will never do it. I've just developed a software platform now for our business. It's taken me seven years to get from idea to deliverable Mm. because I couldn't find the tools to build it for six years. Uh, And we've tried and failed several times. We now have it, and it's a market-changing solution. Mm. But, That's been a lot of effort and most people will never, ever do that work. So just showing up and doing the work sets you well apart from everybody else.
1: Right. And on top of that, if they are working every day, they're making those steps and they have someone they can follow, I think the journey is going to be a lot easier. The hard work is still going to be hard, but it's going to be be less hard.
2: So. Yeah, and context is a wonderful thing. You learn, I think context and insight is one of the most valuable things you could, any professional can bring to the table. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. For us, um, let's say somebody says, I've got a dentist account. Do you think you can make a good campaign for this dentist? And I go, okay, we've just done an analysis of 232 dental accounts with a million dollars of spend and 300,000 clicks.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, out of that, you know, I think I've got a pretty good idea what a good dental account looks like. You know, your local guy who's got three, (laughs) it's much. Um, But you can only get context over time. You know, I look at an account now or whatever, and you know in a heartbeat whether it's right or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe, my business partner, looks at launch metrics and EPCs and knows whether they're right or not in a heartbeat Mm -hmm. because he's looked at so many over the years. But on a day one, you have beginner's vision and beginner's eyes, and you can't see those things. They take time. Time, effort, and experience the only way you can get those skills um, and that intuition. So uh, for me, you see things as a, as a, afterwards that you could never see before because you didn't even have to look for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. I think that's it. Thank you very much, uh, Rob. That was great. I think uh, thank absolute you- pleasure. Uh, great words and uh, I'd love to give it to our audience and uh, get some feedback on it but thank you very much And uh, absolute pleasure and
2: uh, great speaking to you
1: and that's it
0: for this episode of Launch Legends if you enjoyed listening and would like us to find and share more online marketing launch stories please search for Launch Legends in your favourite podcast listening app and then subscribe rate and review until next time